Born in August 1933 in Ottawa, Canada, Claire Van Vliet graduated from San Diego State College with distinction in 1952. After earning her MA degree in art at Claremont College in 1954, she established one of the country's most creative fine private presses, the Janus Press, Located near the Canadian border, Janice Press is recognized as an outstanding leader in the book arts field and has made a major contribution to American fine printing in the second half of the 20th century. This self-supporting, independent small press, operated by a single woman, is noted for creating innovative, uniquely handmade, experimental, limited editions of contemporary poetry, literary classics, and fine books of art. Claire Van Bleet, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I'd like, if I could, to take you back to the moment when your first publication of a book called An Oxford Odyssey by poet and teacher John Theobald was first produced. How did you feel when you were able to hold it in your hands? Well, it was very nice, I must say. And uh, it's an interesting story about why it got published. Uh, John Theobald <clears throat> was English. Uh, he'd gone to Oxford and had C.S. Lewis and C. Day Lewis as his tutors. And uh, he was my teacher in California. Many English sort of gravitated to California back in the before it got so crowded. Huxley and uh, oh yes. The Isherwood and all kinds of people were there, uh, Alan Watts. John Theobald submitted the Oxford Odyssey to Faber and Faber. He had previously been published by Humphreys, and he got a letter back signed by T.S. Eliot saying that they were interested only in British poets. Oh, goodness. So, it's kind I, of ironic coming from an American. Exactly. I, I just impulsively said, well, let's do it ourselves. And so we did. Had you done anything like that in the past? No. Grew them, let's do it ourselves. <laughs> That's right. So there were woodcuts involved. There, Yes, I did wood engravings, actually. And I, I had uh, just completed my MFA, and my subject had been printmaking and mainly relief prints. And wood engravings was, was one of them. And so I made three wood engravings for, for that edition. But it was one of the most ambitious things that uh, the Janus Press ever did. It was one of those where fools rush in, you know, angels fear to tread because it was uh, a thousand-line poem. You basically said, I'm going to make this book in a limited edition of... I can't remember how many we made. Um, it's probably in the catalog's resume how many there yeah. are. And it is back 54 years. Did you want to make it similar to a, a regular book, or did you yeah, want to... No, it wasn't even sewn. It was stapled. I didn't really know oh. anything. And it was printed on a clamshell bed press, which I've never used again. It was set in linotype, which I've never used again. But I like to do things with my hands, so it didn't take me very long to kind of be able to operate both of those machines. Every boy in America in middle school learned how to set type and to print. Wow, is that widespread, was it? It was, yes. Industrial arts was very widespread. 
Now, what did you do with the book? Did you take it around to bookstores? Not really. Um, we just sort of gave it away. What Mailed it out to list of friends and... It was a sort of an unusual activity at that time, and I think the most interesting thing about it after the publication was that, that it was actually reviewed by Hugh Kenner in the Kenyan Review. I mean, now there's so many books. I mean, even though everybody says the book is dead, there's more books than ever. Hundreds of thousands each oh, year. Ex- absolutely. Yeah. So it was it was interesting that it, it got a, a serious review. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was the first edition that was the poetry. First. And this is this has been a major focus of yours it throughout has. the uh, the life of the press. It has. Yes. And of course, I wanted to have a look at your Hedge School by Seamus Heaney. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just take us through the the process then. You you, uh, obviously admired his work. Did you just pick up the phone and call him or write him a letter? Actually, I co-published that with uh, Charlie Selyuzicki, who was a bookseller in Portland, Oregon. And it was Charlie who sent me the the text. And I didn't have any contact really much with Seamus uh, until after the book was... Printed and we met several times and, and enjoyed each other. Oh yes, he, he must. Was, have, oh yeah, he was happy with it. And, and uh, let's describe it. It's in a beautiful. When we do um, uh, just a paper cover book, which this was, often the people who are participants in the making of the book and the author, I do a special binding for them. And so this is one of the special bindings. But the illustrations are uh, reduction woodcuts. That's always a kind of an interesting challenge. In in three colors here. Yes, and you start out with printing one color, and and, and then you cut away more and reprint. And so it's not anything you can do again, because you've started out with a block that then gets recut and then printed over and then gets recut again and gets printed again. So again, with this first edition, how many did you produce? A lot. We did 285. Okay, so if you were to have done another edition, there's no way it could have been the same. No. And Hedge School is the sonnets from Glanmore, and it got uh, published in a trade edition, of course. You actually designed those cuts. Oh, yeah, I cut the cuts. So what went through your mind when you read the the sonnets? Mm -hmm. You talked earlier about wanting to make the words more, uh, what? Accessible. And one of the ways of doing that with poetry is to slow the reader down. Because I think we're so used to reading very, very quickly, maybe even skipping for content and that sort of thing, that one of the things that you can do when you make a handmade book of poetry is to slow the reader down. And that means providing them with lots of graphics to sort of look at before they turn the next page? Well, or something... Striking? Yeah, something that they can look at. After the Second World War, there was a very strong sense in the literature world, especially in New York, that the word should not be diluted, diluted in mm. any way. But everybody bought 
cookbooks with illustrations and travel books with illustrations mm -hmm. and read magazines that had illustrations. It used to be that uh, novels, when they came out, had illustrations. Well, that's fine. They got to be up in their lonely tower with less and less sales. It's too bad, really. So you wished to change that? Well, I only wish to slow the reader. Not distract. To make it, no, not distract. Definitely no. not distract. And in fact, no. that's the line, isn't it? I it mean, is, absolutely. So how do you draw that line without being overbearing? Well, it takes a long time. You have to immerse yourself in the text for months, sometimes even years, until not to sound too zen about it, but until it makes itself clear as to what it wants to be. <laughs> okay. Well, let's look at that, the Heaney. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, to me, I'm looking at the front cover now. It's right. a beautiful green and a sort of a royal Well, this blue. is the special binding. The, the regular book had just a, a very plain brown cover yeah. that was embossed with Hedge School. But that's because this is very earthy. Yeah. yeah, that affected the, the choice of color of the paper. Well, the paper is uh, Barcham Green DeWent, and it is a very earthy kind of rough paper, yeah. originally developed for watercolors in the 19th century. I didn't want to be too illustrative. The sonnets are paired, but there is an illustration only above one of them. Did so you choose the, the pairing or not? No, 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 I no. didn't change the, uh, the this order. This is just the order, okay. I didn't mm -hmm. change the order. But because I wanted it to pair, I started the, the, the book on the verso, on the left-hand page. The first poem is on the left-hand page, and this is something that's not usually done. Now, these, uh, these images, these production woodcuts, mm -hmm. they refer then only to the sonnet on the page that they are printed on? Yes. I mean, here we have this moon over a snow field, so that hopefully they also kind of worked together. And again, as you mulled over the sonnets, did you sort of close your eyes and wait for some sort of image to appear in your mind? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you transferred that to the wood. Right. The five uh, woodcuts are, are fairly different. It's a very rich group of poems. I added simpler images on the title page and also on the dedication page. And when you hand set the type, you really do get a chance to get to know the text. You have to proofread it. Do you fix things and then you proofread it again? So there's a lot of opportunities to kind of get into the poem. You know, they don't reveal everything with the first reading, which is another reason why I think quite a few people print poetry, because poetry lends itself to being reread in a way that fiction doesn't. I mean, It's condensed, complex. And, and not only that, and I think it's also why poetry tends to come out, people make fun of it in the slim vol. <laughs> but if you want to read the poems uh, in one sitting, it's nice to be able to read them as a, a group. And usually more than 20, it all kinds of be starts to become a blur. 
But let's move on to Franz Kafka. Interesting choice of author. You featured his work primarily between 1962 and 72. 75, actually. Okay. His Parables and Paradoxes and Conversation with the Supplicant. And the Country Doctor. And also, I included a whole bunch of his things in the anthology of the Tower of Babel. I lived in Germany in 1955. I found that Kafka seemed very real. A lot of people think it's a fantasy, but it seemed to me very, very real, which is why my illustrations are really quite realistic. And that's also one of the reasons why I liked John le Carre, because having lived there and having lived behind the Iron Curtain in Vienna, his spy who came in from the cold is so dead on. So it's made me trust a lot of the things that he said in his, his other work because he was so accurate about the times and the place. You would suggest then that because of Kafka's and Lacare's truth, mm-hmm. you seek out authors whose truths resonate with your own take on the world? Well, as far as Kafka and Lacare, they just seem to me to really distill a reality of that time in, in Europe. Well, and Kafka was so predictive of the future, too, wasn't he? It's extraordinary. When they asked me to do a book for the Limited Editions Club, and I did The Circus of Dr. Lau, they they actually said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd love to do Kafka's The Castle, but I realized that that would mean going to Austria. I mean, there wasn't the expense. And the other was The Day of the Locust, and I, I didn't think the limited editions club would like a book that was quite so raunchy. So we went with with the the Circus of Dr. Lau. It's based on The Temptations of St. Anthony, really, by Anatole France. Well, we'll move from Kafka then and the content mm-hmm. to what's been called your most original work. And I'm speaking with Claire Van Vliet, who is one of the world's most renowned Book arts practitioners, what would you like to be called? I would like to be called a bookmaker. Not a bookie? Well, that's okay. Actually, there's a group in Holland called Bookie Wookie. (laughs) (laughs) They love books over there too, don't they? There's quite a history of uh, bookmaking over in Holland. Your most original works are those created using colored paper pulp books and broadsides in which Mm -hmm. color pulps act either as substrates or as component in your increasingly complex illustrations, quote-unquote. What does that mean? Well, the idea of trying to completely integrate everything, and to do that, I, this is back in 1976, I, I thought it would be very nice if you could print a poem sort of in the paper that the image and the poem would then be completely uh, integrated. I got a, a, a grant from the National Endowment of the Arts Literature Program and went to Twin Rocker, which was and is still a handmade paper mill started by Kathy and Howie Clark in Brookston, Indiana. Kathy is a printmaker 
they were very interested in multiples. People had been doing things with handmade paper, doing imagery with handmade paper, but not necessarily multiples. Can you describe multiples? Well, doing an addition. In other words, doing an image that's editioned. That's replicated in a limited edition. Right, and so I had a poem by Hayden Carruth called Aura, which took you through a day in the fall here in Vermont, looking at the mountains, and then into the evening with the evening star. So I wanted to make a long sheet of paper that would fold in and that you would feel surrounded by the mountains when you read the poem. We were not able to print on that paper because the technology of the paper making wasn't quite up to it yet, the handmade paper. But the next one that I did, one called The Dream of the Dirty Woman, and that, the text is on the paper, and then another one called Lilac Wind, where the text is very much integrated into the landscape. Does that affect legibility? Oh, no, not at all. No, no, it's printed letterpress. That one did achieve that sense of integration. They are multiples. An accordion style. What it is, is is multiple painting. And I've always said, well, if if it was okay for uh, El Greco to do 17 penitent St. Peter's with or without ivory, it's quite okay to be a workman and make 150 landscapes that are more or less the same. <laughs> the Cezanne, the mountainside? Well, I think those are all different, but uh, St. Peter's by El Greco are very, very similar. Right. They're okay. wonderful, yes. and it does mean that 17 museums around the world uh, benefit, it, yeah. It definitely benefits. So your, obviously your objective here was to make them as similar as possible. Yes. But they're each one originals. Yes, they are. But one of the reasons that I like to print things in edition is because it becomes not such a precious object yeah. and the price is much more reasonable. So on Lilac Wind, which is very much about the snow, and the winter, I asked the author, who is W.R. Johnson, he's a classicist, if I could fool with the, the lines, could, could I put them in at an angle? And because that works so much better with this image. Kind and of a sloping pile of snow. Yeah, I did this one, which was in, well, actually, by the time I did, see, from 76 to, by the time we got to, to 80, the Twin Rocker was making their paper out of muslin, and so the paper was much finer. Before that, they were using linters, and uh, that makes for a, a less refined sheet. And they were also using denim, but uh, something like Lilac Wind and The Dream of the Dirty Woman are printed on, on the muslin. And The Dream of the Dirty Woman was the first book that I did that in incorporated music. It has a, a um, recording. Oh, it's, it's accompanied by a CD, is it? Or? Mm -hmm. oh, Not yeah. a CD. It's actually vinyl. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> that's that's coming think? back, though, isn't it? Well, it's, it's a better sound. And this is uh, The Dream of the Dirty Woman. Uh, and it was a bread and puppet performance. 
And that's a that's a theater that's, that's a theater uh, in this right region up the road here. here. Yeah. Okay. This one I'm very interested in in texts that have more than one language and also in integrating, say, the paper making. And uh, this one has also a, a uh, recording of the, of the text. So the, the box is, is large enough to accommodate that LP. That's right. And here's the LP. And we made a thousand of the LPs, uh, and the performers got paid by each getting a hundred copies of the LP, and because they're performers, they had those to sell at their performances. So, just to uh, just summarize then, your work then is known for its harmoniously balanced textual and visual elements, as well as for the careful consideration of inks, complex bindings, papers, box making, and typography. Anything else? I don't know who wrote that. That's very nice. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, but yeah, like we've got the ink. We haven't really talked about ink, but I mean, you would select the ink for its. Well, I just start out with a basic ink and I modify it okay. um, because you use a sort of different quality of ink for relief and for intaglio and for letterpress and for lithography too. Since I print in all of those media, I, I'm used to uh, modifying ink. I would say that I'm a jack of all trades. I'm not really an expert in any of the aspects of the book. But I am very interested in, in how they all go together and that they should go together in a right way. What's the right way? Well, the right way is one that makes, you know, the good old saying, the sum of the parts. Greater than the whole? Or no. It's, the whole is greater than the sum mm -hmm, of the parts? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, what does that mean, though? What it means is that everything is right. What, by the look and feel of it, you, it's something subjective, it's something that you feel is right. Right. When I do uh, a book called The Housewife's Diary, from A Housewife's Diary, which is a very funny book, it's bound in a dishcloth, dish toweling, so that the minute you pick up that book, you know that it's going to be about the kitchen. And it's going to have and, a sense of humor. And it's going to have a sense of humor. I did a book of Garcia Lorca's, The Ballad of the Spanish Civil Guard, I did it in both languages. And a bookbinder once said to me, oh, you should have rounded the corners on this cover. And I said, well, I wanted the cover to be nasty. Edgy. Because how something feels in the hand really does tell you a lot about that's a very strong uh, people aren't thinking about it, but it's, it, it is really informing how they're reacting to something. So those sharp corners, which that shiny cloth m made happen, is very appropriate for that. I mean, they, Guardia Silvio cuts off the, the gypsy women's breasts. So why wouldn't you want something that was sharp and nasty? As you say, it, I mean, if you're handling the book, you're going to feel that, mm -hmm. and it's a subconscious thing, I suppose. You're, 
Yes. I mean, you're going to read that, oh, those feelings as well. Oh, it shouldn't be obvious. It's much yeah. better if it's not obvious. Yeah. Okay. I mean, once it, it brings too much attention to itself, you've really defeated the purpose. Yes, in fact, the press strives for a balance between various claims to attention and affection that a book exerts upon the reader, viewer, handler. Wow. I've never read that before. That's nice. Where'd you get that? It might have been oh, the nice. Library of Congress. I'm not sure. Oh, it might be the Library of Congress. They have my design archive. Yeah. <laughs> Your experience of dealing with the author... Have you, I mean, typically you, you get the text, you put your own mark on it, or you present it in a way that it has affected you, but have you had an experience with an, the, the author where you've had a back and forth with them, or not? Well, I, I have had a back and forth with the authors, um, certainly with uh, Margaret Kaufman, I did with the Aunt Sally's Lament, and I've, I've sort of made it clear, particularly with the quilt books, you know, I wanted to know what quilt patterns had inspired the quilt poems. This is by Sandra McPherson, Beauty and Use, which is about black women's quilts. I guess when it's interesting, if there's sort of factual information you require, that makes sense. But, uh, you know, as we know, once the author has let that book out into the world, it becomes the reader's book as much as the author's book. I usually print something that I get a book idea for. It, I am approaching it from a different viewpoint than somebody who's coming to it just from the point of view of literature. You want to respect the intent of the author, I imagine. Oh yes, definitely. And if there are difficulties, as Gabrielle Roman said. Don't work with authors that are difficult, because there are so many good ones that aren't. And sometimes I have done a text that I knew that I had done I wasn't the right artist for. Mm -hmm. And really one of the things that's great about making books is that every single one of them is different. Certainly I don't have a format I plug the books into. I mean, many presses do have, you know, they have their favorite typeface, they have their favorite format, and which is fine. And those are often uh, presses that are very literary, that have this sense that in the beginning was the word. Yeah, the text is king. Yeah, and so everything else should serve the text, or not get in the way. I also do some books that don't have text. Janice Press has done some visual books. In fact, we're working on a series of visual books right now of the seasons with three different artists, myself, Ruth Fine, and uh, Peter Schumann from Bread and Puppet Theater. So we're each doing uh, four of, of the months of the year. I'm going to wind this down then okay. with the Janice Press was named by Van Vliet for, quote, an ancient Roman god, Janice, for the rising and setting sun, it stood for the balance in the Renaissance because of his ability to look forward and backward. The book, as a balanced and unified statement with all of its parts integral and serving to illuminate one another, is the ideal for which the press seeks. That works for you? Yeah. One of the things that I like about working with books 
which is the same as with printmaking, is that it is collaborative. I have a number of people who not only do you have the author, but sometimes an artist that you're working with. I have two people that work with me. Looking at the finished product, that must be the real thrill of it. I don't know uh, whether it is or not. Pro process is in a way more engaging than the final product is. I think this is true for all artists. You get these sort of aha moments. Oh, this is going to work. And that's what gives you the energy to continue. But then when you're all finished, you say, oh, is that it? Oh, dear. I've heard the opposite. I've heard, well, there's all sorts of different collaborators or there's all sorts of different parts to making a mm -hmm. book. And you're kind of discouraged. And then you finally pull it all together. That's when you say, aha. It's like, oh, oh no, this I, really works. Well, partly because I'm, I'm pretty much in control of all the parts and designing all yeah. the parts. It's my art, my process my is engaged all the time. Yeah. And when I'm printing, I mean, the last, I'm still designing the last press run. And we bring it all along together. Yeah. And because we do the binding in-house, the binding components, we're making them at the same time we're printing the book. For most people who are making books, they make the book and then they send it to the binder. Whereas here, it all gets done all together. You don't let go of it. Yeah, I don't let go of it. The only thing that I have let go of from time to time is the boxes, but I make the prototype box and then that goes offshore. But m lately we've been making the books, the boxes here. Final question. Yes. Why are you so nuts about books? I like to read. I can make my living making these books. I mean, this, this 3,000 square foot studio house is was paid for by making books. I didn't start out with any any wherewithal. And, so you're uh, grateful for that? Oh, it's wonderful to be able to make your living doing um, work that is uh, worthwhile. And why is it worthwhile? Well, in some ways it isn't. I don't have time for any other hobbies because it involves so much handwork. I mean, I love to knit and embroider and make rugs and all those things, things that I did more of when I, I was an artist. Yeah. Uh, though I still have an active life as an artist, but I can't make a living doing that. Yeah. Uh, and Why is it worthwhile, though? Why is it worthwhile? I don't know. It's just, you know, we like things. You know, we're beautiful things. Hu well, humans are appropriate things. They're not all necessarily beautiful because maybe the subject isn't beautiful and it shouldn't be beautiful. Beautifully crafted, then, certainly. Well, I'd say well crafted. I'm not a perfectionist. So things are well-crafted and as I said before I'm sort of a jack-of-all-trades and a master of, of none of them. There was no early childhood encounter with books that changed your life? Well my family had books. 
and they belong to the Book of the Month Club. Uh, the Book of the Month Club would issue these heritage books, which were illustrated books, not on handmade paper. They were on machine-made paper. Yeah. But typically they, it was laid paper and it was in a box. Right. They were the large edition made from the limited editions club, small edition. I still have them here. I have Fritz Eichenberg's Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. So I grew up with those limited edition books. From the outside, these look I mean, the shape anyway, right? Um, Not all of them, of no, course. No, no, no. But certainly but, what but I see the, in front of me. Right. And children's books, though they weren't very fancy back in the 30s, and certainly weren't fast, fancy during the Second World War. But um, we valued books. They're important to your parents and siblings? They were definitely important to my father, who was in the Air Force and died in 1942. And literature was important to them. Canadian Air Force? Yeah, RCA. He took the first Canadian squadron overseas in 1939. I have a few books of theirs. Unfortunately, after my mother died, uh, my aunt stored the books in the cellar, so they were, it was really in Fort Francis. It was just awful. Uh, mildew and... Oh, God, yeah. they were just a mess. But, I, you know, I have a remembrance of things past, which was theirs, and the house in Paris, which was theirs, and my father gave my mother Bernard Shaw's Young Woman's, what is it called, Young Woman's Introduction to Socialism and Capitalism. So I have that upstairs. He was a very smart man. I wish I'd known him as a grown-up. Sorry he died when I was nine. I was going to say this is sort of a psychoanalytical way. This may be your way of trying to please your father. And oh, sure, I, I'm sure no, it would have... I don't think so. Okay, we won't go there then. <laughs> no, let's not go there. <laughs> but I admire both my parents. You know, they were, in a sense, cultivated. They weren't self-conscious about it at all. You know, it was just a regular kind of middle-class life. And we went from pillar to pillar to post, you know, because it was the RCAF. Yeah. I mean, we went to a different school every year. Well, thank you very much for uh, all you've done over the last 50 years. You're welcome. To celebrate uh, books and uh, all the various aspects of them. It's, uh, it's a joy just to see them and be close to them. Well, it's, it's been very rewarding to uh, so many people's labors are not worthwhile. At least I've felt that this has been a very worthwhile thing to do. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Located in West Burke, Vermont, the Janus Press, which is Claire Van Vliet, is recognized as an outstanding leader in the book arts field and has made a major contribution to American fine printing in the second half of the 20th century. This self-supporting and independent small press operated by a single woman is noted for creating innovative, uniquely handmade, experimental, limited editions of contemporary poetry, literary classics, and fine books of art. Thanks again. You're welcome.